Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, Star Wars Celebration News, Renfield is hitting theaters, so Ben Schwartz and Chris McKay return to the show to discuss. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 257 of Real Blend, a podcast changing its name to Max later this year. On this week's show, <laughs> I'm back from Star Wars Celebration, and I have That's a good. lot of information to share. Thank you, Kev. Uh, Renfield is hitting theaters, and so Ben Schwartz and Chris McKay are going to be joining the show. Uh, ben Schwartz returning to the show, and Chris McKay, oh, Chris McKay also returning to the show. Do we have Chris on before? For the Tomorrow War. For the, the Tomorrow, tomorrow War. war. Yeah. That's right. I'm like, gosh, we've been doing this for so long. Um, my name is Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing editor here at Cinema Blend. Joined each week, as always, by my stellar co-hosts, Kev McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hello, Kev. How are you? Sean, good to have you back uh, from Thank your you. London travels. Jacob? Gabriel? Good to see all y'all, as always. It is. It's weird listening to the show as a... As a uh, non-participant by the way uh i enjoyed it it's fun it goes to show that we have an entertaining program but it's it is a little bit strange and i i perked up every time you guys mention me so thank you very much uh the man is jake hamilton uh, jake hamilton of fox 32 in chicago hi jake how are you did you get my shirt yes i did get your shirt yeah it still looks really small though i just I don't I understand like no i understand that but like Jake Your shirt sizes shirts. and my shirt sizes are very, very different. Like my my brother has a two, my brother has a two year old, and I'm going to be sending those shirts to Jake. <laughs> I get I get the child's hand me downs. Most people don't know this, but if you if you watch Fox 32 in Chicago, his suits are actually just body paint. He gets those painted paint. on before he goes live. <laughs> oh, I think our ratings are so good. Yeah, yeah. So I will drop that in the mail to you. Yes, I did get your shirt, and then Thank I also you, had to. I'm going to buy uh, yours then. That was the what? deal. Which I'm going to buy your shirt. What shirt? Did you get a shirt? No, I didn't get I one. I texted you, buy yourself a shirt, and then I'll, I'll pay for your shirt. Well, I'll buy a different shirt. No, it's got to be a different version. No, I didn't really like the, uh, I didn't really care for the shirts that they had merchandise this year. They weren't Thanks. really, <laughs> there's nothing really that special. Hey, you know that I was sending you a flurry of text messages. He was, from he was, behind, he was shopping for me. And as someone who hates shopping for clothes, the idea of shopping for someone else and then texting them information on another continent is that's friendship. Not just that it was the time difference. Cause you were in the West coast. Yeah. Yeah. I was in uh, Napa. So it's a significant time difference. Yeah. And I had talked my way into that gift shop by going up to the security guard. And uh, I used my I showed them my wristband and I was like, hey, I just have to go take some pictures for press and skipped this very long line. Oh, of people it's yeah, I, can, I can now testify in, in yeah. true confidence that the phrase, "Ooh, Sean's getting me a 40th anniversary Return of the Jedi T-shirt yeah. is not as sexy to your girlfriend as you think it is. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> She's a little disappointed. Um, let's say hi to Gabe Kovach and sitting in the producer's chair. Hi, Gabe. How are you? I'm good. How are you boys doing? Welcome We're back, Sean. Good. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you guys are watching us on YouTube to see what size shirt Jake is wearing, uh, thank you for joining us. Hello. Welcome to the Friday notification crew. Head down 
Give us a like and a subscribe. Also comment. We love comments. Uh, They help the show to grow. So let us know what you think about the episodes. Uh, After you listen to the episode to the interview with Ben Schwartz and Chris McKay, let us know how you guys feel about that. And then once you've gone to see Renfield this weekend, we want to hear your reviews. So drop them in the comments down below. And quite often the boys here will uh, interact with you folks. If you've never been to the YouTube channel, it is youtube.com backslash real blend podcast. Of course, we're available all the different places where you get your podcast needs met, whether it be Spotify or Apple podcast or iTunes and all that jazz. Um, in addition, I missed this week's real blend premium. What did you guys do? We IMDb did an game. IMDb game. IMDb game. <gasps> Who won? Don't even tell me. No, we can't say the kids won't know yet. It comes out on Monday. <laughs> it makes me laugh that for the last premium, Jake wasn't there and Kevin and I tied. If I can't win, no one wins. Yes. Uh, check the description for information on how you can sign up for premium, which gets you, as always, a Monday episode, a newsletter, and then an ad free version of the show. Uh, we have a lot to get to this week. So let's start right to our interview. Uh, Renfield is a Dracula movie coming out. I haven't seen it, but the boys have, and they're going to review it later on in the Why show. Why are you saying it like that? Yeah, of course it's a Dracula movie coming out. Is it out. really? Well, I just don't know a lot about it. I didn't really pay well, attention Renfield to it. Renfield is a famous Dracula character. Oh, really? Oh, Nicholas yeah. Holt's character is, is Renfield. Renfield. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and in Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, yeah. which is directed by Nicholas Cage's uncle, Francis Ford Coppola, I believe Nick Cage was supposed to play the um keanu reeves part i believe okay. originally in that movie the renfield character is played by tom waits oh. so yeah it's a very it's a very famous character with within the dracula world um and yeah for people who aren't aware he's essentially dracula's henchman um you know kind of does literally everything and, and in the modern times even his dry cleaning um <laughs> so that's kind of part of the 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 bit of the film but okay. nick cage uh, I he's I I read somewhere he's wanted to play this character for a long time and I in my interview for TV with him I asked him like did you talk to Francis Ford Coppola or you know about what he did with Bram Stoker's did you model anything after Gary Oldman and Cage started talking about how he modeled the character after his father August um, and, and it's funny his Dracula kind of reminds me of more of Castor Troy <laughs> there's like a lot of like 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 eccentric eccentric aspects to the character but yeah so this interview is Chris McKay. Ben Schwartz. Um, Ben's been on the show multiple times after party. Funny enough, and All I right. said this in the interview, um, the last time, one of the last times we had Ben on the show, remember we couldn't use video of Ben, and there was a reason, because Ben had the tattoos still on his arms from the movie Redfield right. that he was shooting, and he's That's like, right. I can't have these out there publicly. So, weirdly enough, then now full circle, he's back. We have him on full video. And I do recommend the video component to this uh, interview, which you're about to hear, because the beginning, um, Ben... Uh, and Chris both take us around kind of their apartment a little bit and show us some some cool things. So just if, you know, audio sounds great, but if you get a chance, maybe after you listen to it, go back and check out the video. There you go. Without further ado, Ben Schwartz and director Chris McKay joining us on behalf of Renfield. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I'm just going to get right into this. Well, first of all, because we have a visual aspect to our show now on YouTube, our backgrounds are all very interesting. Ben, you've been on our show multiple times and the last time Ben was on here actually I gotta say he was actually wearing the tattoos that he was using to film this movie and we and we weren't able to use video of him because the tattoos the movie hadn't come out yet it was still kind of in the works but now I don't have any tattoos 
I know. So well, I wanted to give our audience a real quick view. So, Ben, what's behind you? And then, Chris, what's well, I want to talk about your posters yeah. as well. But, Ben, what can what are people seeing behind you right now? OK, right behind me right now are three improv posters. One in the middle is Ben Schwartz and Friends. And it's when I played the Beacon Theater in New York, which, by the way, I'm coming back to New York and playing Radio City Music Hall in September, Ooh. which is very I've never exciting. heard of that place. <laughs> it's kind of new, but it's going to be yeah. great. Um, and these are all made by an artist named Dave Clock, who's a genius and does posters for like Childish Gambino and Grateful Dead. And then he also does comedy posters for me. Is that um, King Kong? Then, is that you as King Kong in the middle? Yeah, of it? it's King Kong. And in the palm of his hands is me and my improvisers improvising for him, trying to make King Kong laugh on the top of the Empire State Building. <laughs> I'm very excited. And then over here is a typewriter I got from a movie I did called Floor and Ulysses. And then over here is the typewriter Tom Hanks gave me because he's the best guy. And then I have a shoe of Sonic the Hedgehog in the middle. This um, is so cool. This is so cool. Fun. And, yeah. And Chris, what about you? What, what are we seeing? Is that, is that, is that scream to your to your right? Is it? This is uh, that one is uh, Brian De Palma's Fury. It's a seven foot. I'm a, oh. I'm, a, I'm a single man. You can tell I'm a single man. I've got a seven foot tall poster of uh, Brian De Palma's Fury. And then over here, uh, Nick Holt gave me a horror of Dracula. Uh, oh, I love poster, it. Uh, yeah, when, when we wrap. So, so yeah, I've got a giant uh, Italian horror of Dracula. Poster. That's awesome. Well, yeah. our, our show is, uh, as, as Ben knows, is designed for people who love filmmaking, people who love going to the movies, people try to understand the filmmaking process. I want to dive into a lot of the practical effects you use in this film, the at, the aspect ratio, the cinematography is incredible. Um, I, ben, you and I talked for TV about the tattoos, but I want to dive into that process as well. But first, you have a movie that's opening in theaters exclusively. Um, we have seen people going back to the movies in mass mass numbers or you know top gun avatar you know mario's crushing right now mm -hmm. universal and so i wanted to ask each of you as we celebrate this kind of return to theaters and people kind of going back and it's been nice to see what your favorite theatrical experience memory is that comes to mind and you know chris i'll start with you because you directed the film and obviously this is a film that will be seen on the big screen for a lot of people so what's that memory for you what, what do you go back to that that first one you go man that was so cool to see with a crowd yeah, I mean, uh, uh, seeing Star Wars when I was a little kid, I mean, that was like one of my, you know, that was a huge memory for me because, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons, movies, you know, obviously works and plays and all that kind of thing. It's great and great fun. And, you know, no one had ever seen anything like that before. But like Lucas, you know, during the trench run, used all those point of view shots. And as a kid, you know, I'm just I'm transported into yeah. the trench. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I remember as a kid, like, thinking I'm, you know, I'm, you're seeing this point of view and you're going through the trench. And uh, I just remember even just sort of like kind of like in my seat and I was a little kid, like making noise, like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in this, you know, I'm in this fucking, you know, movie. So uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, that was a big experience for me. Um, and then like as an adult, probably seeing Blue Velvet or, oh, um, you know, David Lynch. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs was a really great um, movie experience. I took, I took a date. Uh, to go see David Cronenberg's Crash, that was a really uh, that was a really bad experience. The James Spader, right? James Spader, where yeah, where they were having sex with automobiles. Yeah, I took a date to that. That was a big. That was a first date. That was a big mistake. You should take take that date to go see Titan next time, uh, or Titan, whatever that yeah, movie was yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. that movie. Yeah, is. I, haven't, I haven't seen it in twenty years. <laughs> Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> ben, what about you, man? What, what was uh, a theatrical experience for you? I remember watching, uh, I don't know if it was the first or second Back to the Future, that being an enormous deal, but one of the biggest ones for me was uh, 
Jurassic Park was the movie I saw mm-hmm. most times in theater because I saw it and it felt like I was on a ride. It felt like I was at like Disneyland on a ride and I couldn't believe it. And I went five times or something like that. I kept going back because the experience of actually being in the theater and ingesting it on such a big screen. But also like, I mean, remember when like the IMAX is big or like 70 millimeter and like, you know, Dark Knight comes out and mm-hmm. like all of a sudden you're like, I remember you go to one of the theaters just to try to see the trailer for Dark Knight. Uh, the prologue, is it Dark Knight? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Are you talking about the one with so Bane, like, the one, the prologue with Bane and like for, for Rises? But that didn't they also awesome. have the one where the Joker, the very first eight minutes of the scene where Joker robs the, yeah. that was yeah. crazy. But also Bane, fall, that's the one where they fall out of the, like a huge, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Anything, anything. Slides. Yeah. So it's like, um, I, those are some of the best experiences. And then honestly, Marvel movies, like recently, like to be around and something happened that all of us care about characters and then something enormous happens. And then um, all of us respond together, or all of us gasp at a post-credit sequence. So, um, I mean, I love, I miss it. So I have so many memories. I also have memories of being at like an empty theater, seeing airheads. And it was just me and my friend Mark <laughs> and no, nobody else was in the theater and we'd run up and down Amazing. the aisles. That's it was. It's, I have a mate, or I also have a memory of like someone getting arrested at the theater and getting pulled out because they were uh, pulling down their pants during the net uh, with uh, Sandra Bullock in the Bronx. <laughs> when, when my dad there. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I have so many wonderful. Uh, I remember my dad was so. My dad. My dad is very South Bronx guy, and I saw a guy getting dragged. I've never in my life, and it made me so uncomfortable when I was young. I don't know when the net came out, um, but I wasn't like you know I wasn't eighteen or something like that, and so dragged out and an an usher which you know places don't even have anymore uh and we're in some theater in the bronx and i go dad what what and the guy had a handle of vodka in one hand and his pants are on his ankles and you got handle vodka and vince i go what happened and my dad's like the guy was caught jerking off come on let's watch and that was was like it was like like not even a my dad's like yeah yeah yeah, don't worry about it don't worry about it come on that's like, a, that's like a Goodfellas-esque life lesson. Hashtag cinema. So, well, first of all, I, I want to dive into some of the practical effects because one of the great things about watching this film is everything felt real. Like, I mean, the makeup on Nick Cage was unbelievable. The tattoos on Ben, just mm. everything about the everything about the environment felt practical and, and insanely there. Um, and you have some of the coolest gore effects I've probably seen from Dust Till Dawn. Like I remember seeing the end, the ending act of D- Dust Till Dawn there. And this it just reminded me of those practical effects that Rodriguez did back then. And so I want to go to you, Chris, first about just some of the practical effects. What was the coolest or the craziest gore effect that you had and how it was achieved? And like in terms of like because the, the explosions and the blood and like the arms, it's yeah. just awesome. So I was just curious what that was like for you to be able to do those practically. And was there one that was kind of more interestingly to see in person? Yeah, well, we, we squibbed up Ben and shot. And, and pulled him about 15 feet across the room uh, when he got shot with a shotgun. That was a lot of fun. First time um, I've ever done that. Yeah, you, you did a great job, too. You were awesome. You were, Do you, you were really awesome. get yanked in something like that? Like, how yeah, there's that a rope. There, yeah. Oh, that all, there's a bunch of times I get yanked in this because I get my ass kicked. Uh, Chris gave me a character that I just get my butt kicked in every scene I'm in. <laughs> um, but for that one, I get shot. There's like a wire up my body. So I get shot and blood comes out. And then I jump back at the same time. Um, and, well, there was, uh, and there was, and there's actually, there was, there was, there was squibs on Ben and there were squibs on the door behind Ben. Oh, that's so right. He's actually, he's actually getting pulled towards, towards the door. That's also like, you know, exploding squibs and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun, but, but, but like, you know, the, the stuff that, um, 
the, you know, it's a combination of like what Chris Brewster did, who was the stunt coordinator, coordinator, second unit director, and what Christian Tinsley did, who's the makeup effects artist, yeah. and ran the whole makeup team as well as doing all of the special makeup and things like that. And he did some amazing work. I mean, if you watch the stuff they did like on Westworld, there's some really brutal stuff that he that he did on that show. And I was really impressed with like what he's done. He's such a good guy. And he um you know, we, we, you know, we obviously we wanted to do the arm rip and that stuff like that. And that was kind of in the script, but there was, there was an escalation that I knew I, I wanted him to like be beating guys up with the arm and using the arms as spears and stuff like that. And, and then I, I you know, I wanted to get to the, you know, I, I going to keep escalating it. So we did that face rip, which was something that we did practically where we had a guy and they did this, you know, really interesting, you know, uh, you know, makeup appliance on his face, but he was completely blind. So that guy had to be like walked into wow, wow, like that. So that when we did that gag, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, where, where, you know, where Nick pulls the, the face off, um, you know, that guy's yeah. kind of basically like standing there completely because he can't see anything. So we had to sort of get him in place and then do the, do the rip. But that was oh, Chris. That was, what about when hold punches off that dude's head? Yeah, we played out with Apache Joe. That was a lot of fun, and then also like you know yeah, having having the you know head hit the car with Ben, yeah, uh, and stuff like that. That was that that was a lot of fun. But yeah, we we built up a full dummy, a full dummy suit that had a cannon, uh, you know, blood cannon with a bunch of gallons of blood inside it, and you know just did the you know and then had the same kind of harness that you know Ben was on when he got you know you know you know ratcheted across the room. We had that on the back of that the the head of the of the dummy head. So when, when Nick hit it, it goes flying and the explosion happens. And that was, yeah, that was, that stuff was great. That was a lot of fun. And Ben, for, for you as an actor to have that, that access to practical effects, I mean, like, obviously there's so much going on today with CGI, but CGI can, ends up being a tool, like in Microsoft Paint, it should be something you go to, to, to add to what you're doing, but getting things in camera uh, as an actor, I mean, that's gotta be today, at least today in today's times to have it there for you must be incredible. It's remarkable it's so fun and also uh chris is great with the world and also playing playing with it also building the sets the sets are so practical that that a layer of dracula is all set up like it's crazy there's blood bags everywhere and there's all these things and then even for there's a um the like hideout for uh, the lobos it's decked out there's guns on the walls there's uh there's a see-through coffin that my dad a real extra sat in for every single scene there's a guy just sitting for every scene for the um thing and there's little holes in it so we can obviously breathe but it's like the the attention detail is amazing then when we're on there and playing i can play with anything i can go anywhere it doesn't matter like when you do cg stuff it's a little bit sometimes you're on a green screen and you have no idea what the hell's going on but i'm there's a there's so much stuff that chris film there's so much wonderful stuff but um it's a very lean and awesome movie right now but yeah. there's some stuff that um um you know obviously had to get cut for time but there's things where like i'm interacting with there's a take where i like by mistake smashed a glass off a table we just kept rolling and like because there's the world to play with and chris also wants you to be creative he comes from a world of like you know look at the animated stuff he's done look at the work he's done on robot chicken look at like the creative process there'll be i remember we had this one scene where i jump out of my car and cops are chasing me and i'm throwing cocaine at the cops and then chris is like you know what you should do let's get get yourself in this random car go through it. and then chris went opened the car went through it like you don't see directors get that dirty and he was it was <laughs> it's so fun to work with someone who's so passionate because we're both like what would be the funniest thing to happen what would make this scene the best thing we could do okay we got the script what else can we play with and then in the end they can figure out what they want to use or not but it's like um 
it was amazing to be practically in that world. You got to play as an improviser, you get to play with everything. And then for, after we do the script, Chris giving you the opportunity to go, okay, do go, go do your thing. And it was, it was really, really fun. Although night shoots every day being a night shoot is not easy. That is, that is tough. I don't know how <laughs> Ben, Ben, uh, Ben, you know, that, that, uh, that line that Ben says when he leaves the car, I've got a prescription for this shit. That's all, that's all, yeah. that's all Ben Schwartz improv. Yeah, that's one of the funniest bits in, 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 to me, for me yeah. in the movie. I think it's really and for people listening right now, if you've never seen Ben's improv show, highly recommend mm-hmm. he's going on tour. Um, check out his Instagram for ben the Ben Schwartz and Friends. Yeah, it's on rejectedjokes.com. It's so great. I got to see you at the Warner Theater here in D.C. It is one of the craziest and most entertaining shows you'll ever see. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that just because, you know, Ben's been on the show before. I mean it genuinely. If you want to just a great night out, it's awesome. Um, Chris, last time we had you on the show is Tomorrow War. And your, your filmmaking career is has been amazing. And just the choices that you made. And everything's been different, which I really love. Um, but Lego Batman movie, obviously. And then you do you know t- Tomorrow War. And now I'm curious, like, like what those films taught you that you could still use here i mean they're very different genres obviously one's animated one's live action and then you're dealing with different thematics different characters different ideas but you know even with lego batman movie you're dealing with iconic characters dracula is an iconic character so i'm just curious is there anything you learned on something like lego batman movie that actually you could still use here in a film like this yeah i mean you know trust your crew trust your you know trust your cast you know i mean i think that's the thing that hopefully every filmmaker gets to at some point is really and uh, you know if you listen to director's commentary i i i I, there's one that's really wonderful that darren aronofsky did when he was when he was uh for pie for his first movie and it's a really great commentary because he talks a lot about how he was kind of upset with um one of the actors because he thought the guy wasn't giving him anything and then and he was kind of sitting on the guy, you know, when he was directing him. And then he went back to the post and he was looking at all this wonderful stuff the guy was giving him. And for him, that was a big wake up call. Like it's like mm. sometimes you have these preconceived notions when you come on set and you want it to be a certain way. And you think that's the only way it can get done, but it's actually not the only way. And there's really wonderful stuff that if you're open to it, that the the cast and the crew and, and everybody can kind of bring to the table. And I think once you start getting comfortable with that and you start sort of loving that, um, you find that you make stuff better and, and better. And, and one of the things, you know, when you're working on an animated movie, obviously you're working with a massive crew. I mean, you know, we're a massive crew on, on live action, but I think, I think in animations, you have, you have certain touch points with everybody in the crew. And so you really are building something together and using everyone's, you know, knowledge and love of movies and this, and it's filmmaking in slow motion. So the animators have a lot of, you know, that you're in some way, you're the producer of whatever that shot or that scene that the animator is doing mm-hmm. because they're, you know, it's in Ben and I experienced this on robot chicken where it's like, the, you know, every animator, we, we talk about the joke, we talk about the scene and some blocking, but every leaf that blows by every little thing that's yeah. going to happen on that set, the animators are, you know, really charging the, and, and they, they can really, if you have a communicated tone to them or they don't, we're not told on the same, you know, uh, wavelength, they can kind of go the wrong way. But if you are, you know, again, if you find a way to, you know, like collaborate in a, in a, in a really true way, you can get a lot out of, out of your team and they will give you a lot for the movie. And that's something I think is a really important lesson. For Chris, me. you purposely pick different genres. Like once you do a genre, you're like, yeah. Are you like, all right, now I'm not going to do, I've done this kind of hard, gory thing now. So it's like, I want to kind of lean or no, you're just like, whatever the script comes in. Or are you like, you know what? I did a Lego Batman. I don't want to do another animator for my next one. I'm going to do this big tomorrow. War. Okay. Now we did this big action alien. I don't want to do that. Are you thinking like that? Or are you just taking whatever your favorite script is that come in? I, you know, I, I, you know, I, 
I probably get, uh, I probably like challenges and I probably get bored a lot. So like <laughs> I, uh, but, but, you know, honestly, like for tomorrow where I was, I just finished Lego Batman and, or, you know, I, I, Lego Batman was the last thing I'd worked on as a director, but I'd sort of started developing things and I was developing Borderlands uh, for mm-hmm. Lionsgate and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and, oh, wow. uh, and something called Amulet. And, and then Tomorrow War kind of came along and I read the script and it was like one of these things where it was like a moving train and you had four. That five. movie's awesome, by the way. That movie's awesome. Oh, I lo- that movie's awesome. I love Tomorrow War. But that was but that but it kind of came along. It's like, oh yeah, we've got a we've got a date and a schedule. And I really like the script. The script needed to work at the time. It was very nihilistic. There was there was no uh Sam Richardson joke character uh in the movie or any of that that kind of thing. It needed a lot of need a lot of stuff to be more of like an all and there and there was no action scenes in it. But, um, but uh, you know, that kind of came along. And so, unfortunately, I had to leave those other projects. But I would have loved to have done, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, I got a story credit on. Um, but I, I would have loved to have worked on that movie because that movie, you know, that's those those guys kind of just took the ball and ran with it and made something that was in the spirit of what we'd sort of talked about, what making an Ocean's Eleven movie, make it really fun and make it about mm. these characters. And don't worry, don't because the, the thing that I wanted to make sure – we didn't do is don't worry about that. It's not just dragons. Don't worry about the homework. You know, you don't want people to think they've got to do homework to watch this movie. Make it fun. Make it a heist movie. That's a lot of fun. And the, those guys, mm-hmm. those guys did a really great job and took the ball and, and ran with it. And it's really amazing. You know, I feel like a lot of people in, in generationally have a certain decade or time period where Nick Cage was a big deal to them, mm-hmm. right? Like, and for me, it was it hit me right in the nineties. I think I watched Face Off 47 times on my VHS, but it was that run of Con Air, Face Off, and The Rock. Yeah, yeah those are three for me too. Yeah, and so, well, that's kind of what I wanted to ask because, and for for each of you because, I mean, he's such a, for me, he's just that actor. Like, like, like I, I got Caster Troy vibes sometimes from the Dracula version he was playing because there were like lines. I know that he's mm-hmm. channeling his father. All, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and one of the cool things about that, but there's Caster vibes a little bit yeah, in the way he sure. moves. And so I was just curious for you, Ben, like, like what your memories of that time, because those are my three. And I just it was iconic. It was everything like Con Air, Rock and Face Off were just the ultimate cage. You and I, you and I are very, very similar. Uh, I mean, we've spent time together and talk. We, I love chatting with you because we have like the same cinephile knowledge of like, these are the ones that affect me, but I'm so aware. I love Raising Arizona adaptation. I watched twice in a row. The second it was over, I started again. I couldn't believe how strong that movie was, but um, the rock face off and um, um, Con Air. And you know, I saw, did I tell you I watched Con Air with John Malkovich in a theater? You told me this when I interviewed you for Space Force. The, like, best, yeah, the uh, best thing in the world. But I and also you tell the story. Talk tell to, the story. This is cool. This is cool. We did. We we're at Space Force. We we're filming in Vancouver. It was during the pandemic still, and so um, at the hotel I was staying at, they had a movie theater, and so we would. I would ask if I could rent it out and invite the cast over, and we could watch movies. <laughs> and John was going to come, and then Tony's like, "We got to We got to watch uh, Con Air with him. We got it." And I was like, "John, <laughs> would you? Do you want to watch Con Air?" And he's like, "Uh, okay." And then Corel's like, okay, I'm, if he's watching Con Air, I'm coming. I'm coming so, so we're all in this little hotel uh, thing. And he had just, I don't think he'd seen the movie since the premiere. So it was like all, and so like, it was great to talk to him about everything. Um, Cyrus I mean, it's the virus. It's, it's so funny. The um, face-off thing. And by the way, Chris McKay might, might have done this without me even knowing. But um, there was a review I got or no, no, it was an interview I got where they're like, my God, dude, you, you're Caster Troy in this. You have gold guns. You got your head. You're like, you're, you're, you're unhinged. You're on. Undr- I was like, oh my God. And, uh, 
I didn't think about it when we were shooting it, but afterwards you look at some of the pictures of my guy, like all in red, holding two gold guns, like just being a badass and being unhinged. And it made me so happy. I hope that Cage, uh, I don't know if he was in that interview, but I was like, oh my God, yeah, a little bit. But I mean, that movie, he's, he goes, he goes full Cage. I mean, I, it makes me want to, I had like a couple scenes with him in this one. We had the best time. He was so interested in improv and, and yeah. the stuff I did that he was really wanted to do more of it with me. And I was like, I almost want to find a movie where we have like an outline and then him and I just go bananas for an hour and a half and see what happens. Cause he's so unpredictable. And as an improviser, my joy is to try to make, you know, go along with whatever the other person's saying. I have no idea what it would look like. It would be so fun. Dude, I, yeah. I would watch Middle Dish Schwartz and Cage in two seconds. If that goes to Netflix, <laughs> let's let, 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 I, I would. I should ask Nick there. Cage to play in Ben Schwartz and Friends. I did ask him once, but he, <laughs> that would be crazy. I will come to that show. I don't care where it is. Uh, and, and Chris, for you, is it that same era of, of movies? Like, because like, you mentioned Raising Arizona, Ben. Raising yeah. Arizona is still my favorite Coen Brothers movie. I mean, I think No Country's. I think No Country's like the best movie they ever made, but I think Raising Arizona might be my favorite. But I mean, it's iconic to think about the different decades he's affected people. So, what was that for you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I saw you know the early stuff like the Raising Arizonas and Moonstruck and Birdie and all that kind of thing. Um, and I, but I think the I think the stuff that made the most impression on me, um, you know, I, I I really loved him and The Rock. I really thought that yeah. he did such a good job. And he's because that's because that was like one of the first movies that he did where it's like, OK, this is just a broad audience movie. That's the first time yeah. he's kind of going and doing that because everything else was. You know, I mean, yes, Moonstruck became like a big deal, but it's a it's a movie written by a playwright. It's you know, it's not that wasn't like a sure thing. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, the box office maybe you know, Cher was kind of coming up and stuff like that. But but like this that movie was like you know, The Rock is like pitched. You know, it's high concept. Jerry Bruckheimer, like all that stuff, and he's just so. It, it, that's just a test with like what a good actor he is, and 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 just what what a movie star he is. A guy who can just have chemistry. That's right. With, with everybody and chemistry with the camera, like he and he just. What's what's a it's you know Ben has this too but like what's like what's really interesting is that like he kind of knows a little bit of like what the he can like sense the tone that the mm. movie or the scene is in and he can just kind of find like it's like it's like a radio dial and just finding like okay so like dialing in like the right tone okay God I get what the tone this fucking thing is cool and I'm gonna <laughs> do this because it's like he shouldn't be as romantic as he is in Moonstruck or something like it could happen to you but he's just he's so good. Um, and it could happen to you. It's just like, he's just playing a cop. Like it's just a, it's a Frank Capra type movie and he's yeah. so good in that movie and so charming. And it's just like, it's a million miles away from bad Lieutenant, you know, port of call, you know, uh, that was good by the way. I love that movie. Uh, I loved his bad Lieutenant. I thought it was, I mean, Kai Ky- tells is classic, but I thought cages was awesome. pig. How good was freaking pig, man. Pig, pig is was incredible. Yeah. Oh my God. Incredible. He yeah. is. And even, Oh my gosh. Mandy was incredible. Um, yeah. So I want to bring up Marco Beltrami because I, I think he's a, a brilliant, brilliant composer. Yeah. Um, and the work he did with, I, I think he did Krasinski's Quiet Place. Yep. I think oh, yeah. I, I Quiet Place is yeah. a great score. Oh my god, great gosh. score. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask this question in, in two different ways for each of you, um, Ben. Like, I can't imagine what it would feel like to do a film 
do all the work you put into it and then finally see your performance set to music. Um, I can't imagine emotionally what that must feel like to then see whether how it elevates or how it brings a different depth to your performance. So just speaking on Beltrami specifically, obviously with the work he did here, but is there a score that you remember hearing your performance set to that you remember moving you oh in, a, in a very great specific Kevin, way? Great question. So I am obsessed with film scores. I'm uh, one of my close friends is Mike Giacchino. And so I get to go to uh, live recordings <laughs> nice. all the time. And because he knows that I'm so into it, he'll invite me um, to like, you know, he's doing what did I, I've seen so many. And then um, uh, when he did Jurassic world, like I got to go in there and watch, it's just insane. And I'm, and there's like two that you can watch from beyond the Chris knows it's better than I do, but you can watch from beyond the glass. But every now and then Giacchino's like, do you want to get in there with the orchestra and just sit like right next to them? And they're doing a sound cue and you'll, know nothing about the movie and just see a 30, 40 second clip or a minute and a half clip. And you'll start crying because the mm. music is so overwhelming and beautiful. I have film scores on vinyl. I listened to film scores like all when I was a kid in my car, I'd always have the back to the future score on, or like I had episode one. I love that. Like, like I, I had, I'm obsessed with <laughs> for, for me. One of the big ones was um, for son. This is because, um, because of how, separate it is for sonic when i'm doing my voiceover at the beginning you do it to nothing and then you do it to match and then you start improvising a bunch and then you start you know and then you start to see sonic slowly turn into sonic but it's the farthest away from like a blueprint to a final as opposed to when we're doing renfield i know what the scene looks like i'm, I'm looking uh, on the monitor afterwards i gotta kind of see like oh it's like i can't wait to see what this looks like with music to give the renfield example there's a fight scene at the end of movie that that you know is a it follows the two sets of characters having huge moments. And it's so, the music and the composition, the editing of that is so incredible that when I watched that, and it's very close to the end of the film, I was like overwhelmed with, because there's so much action going on and I'm not used to doing action stuff. And it, the music and the way that Chris shot it was selling it so much that I was so blown away and I felt so transported. I love that. But for me, Sonic, um, the first or second one, the idea that, I kind of just saying voice and then when I'm watching um, near the end and the music is in and Sonic is finally, finally rendered, which takes a long process. I was overwhelmed because you don't really know what the, that first one was going to look like until they do it. Same with his Lego yeah. Batman movie. It's like until everything is finalized and you know, I'm not looking at little triangles moving around. It's like incredible. So this, that Sonic one for me was huge. And then the fight sequence in the third act of Renfield was enormous. I've never been a part of that type of thing before. And I was like, God, I hope I sold this well enough. And then the way Chris and everybody put that together where it's like, it's two different fights happening at the same time. It's gorgeous. You know what I'm talking about, McKay, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that, that's a really great score that Marco did there. That's a huge, huge thing. And the, and the editorial department deserves a huge shout out too because those guys did a great job of like, you know, balancing the back and forth between the between the, what's happening upstairs with Aquafina and Cage and what's happening with you and, and Holt downstairs. Yeah. And that's my question for you because... I feel like, and I've said this a lot, I've been saying this for years, that scores are leading characters in films. Um, you, know, you look at the way Zim, or the way Nolan uses Zimmer or, yeah. or whoever he's using in his movies. These scores end up becoming atmospheric characters. Like, I think one of the most great examples of this was what Reznor and Ross did with uh, Social Network, yeah. just because it was the heartbeat of the film. That's a great example. Yeah, yeah. It was just like it, the way it moved. It just, it just yeah. made those scenes like, and, and again, like they didn't have it there, I would imagine, when they were shooting. So for you as a filmmaker, do you direct your composer like you would direct an actor? Because if the composer's job is essentially to bring 
character aspects and atmosphere to the to the scene and elevate emotion or bring a certain emotion. It feels like the score almost has arcs like the actors do. And I just wonder, like, do you look at it the same way? Like, do you talk to your, your composer and say, I need this from you emotionally and that from you? What are those conversations? Like? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly that's the, that's the best version of the way that it should go. You actually you should talk about. I mean, honestly, I believe you should talk to every crew member, talk to your DP, you should talk to your editor, you should talk to you know, everyone you know, should be talk, talked to in terms of you know, treat them like that they are, you know, like the way you'd talk to an actor, because I think that's, you know, that's why you're, for me, that's how you, the best way to inspire people. It's what, when people were talking, when I was an editor and people were talking to me, I would, you know, that's, you know, I always want to kind of, tell me what you want to get out of the scene. I know what the footage is. I know what, I know what the script says, but tell me like, what, what do you want the scene to feel like? You know what I mean? What do you mm. want this, what do you want this costume to feel like? Or what's, 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 you know, what's the idea behind this guy? You know, that kind of thing. Like, like, that, that, that to me is, you know, the, what, what, what I think is, you know, is the most, the best way to talk to anybody when you're dealing with a crew. But like, um, when you're talking to, you know, when you're talking to Marco I and mean, Marco's career is like, uh, yeah. I, I, I'd even forgotten that he had just done like Ford versus Ferrari, but yeah. like, you know, like he's done so many, you know, uh, so many movies, you know, obviously did a lot in the horror space because he worked for Wes Craven for so long and did, you know, basically all of Wes's stuff from a, at a certain point, maybe it was the first scream or he did scream. That's right. He did scream. I forgot. He did, he did scream. Wow. He did all yeah. of the scream. He did all yeah. the scream movies, which is really interesting because it's like, because that has to play like an Agatha Christie mystery sometimes as well as like, you know, mm. guys hanging out and that sort of thing as well as the suspense, you know, uh, oh, wow. and things like that. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of stuff, you know, that, you know, there's a lot, a lot of balancing act and, and um, you know, uh, but his quiet place, I mean, when you, that I was just blown away by what he did with quiet place. And, mm. and we use a lot of that for temp when we're doing tomorrow war, because there's mm. just so much good. And, and he does a lot of really good, um, like modern, interesting, like he's, and when you're talking about like Atticus and, 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 and um, Trent Reznor, you know, what, 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 what I love about, uh, and Zimmer too, what I love about what those guys do and what Marco does and what Lauren Balf does, um, who oh, I work yeah. with a lot, um, they work in kind of a, the world of composing as well as sound design. And, you know, and, 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 mm -hmm. and, and Lauren Balf had, a, had, you know, was worked on the Zimmer, score for dunkirk and i think that's a wonderful score and the way they you know the way they use time and the ticking stuff and that sort of thing and so there's this there's this handoff between sound design and score and i'm really fortunate that i also work work with some really great sound designers and the way they play and we you know get, gathering everyone together to kind of collaborate and kind of go no you take this no we'll take that piece da, 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 da. that's where you can really something really magical can happen and that's what i think you know, some of the best composers like you're talking about, they really kind of work with the sound team, the sound mm -hmm. design team, and they really create something that's that's a little bit of both, uh, that, that sometimes you, you can't even tell where the sound design starts and the and, and, yeah. and, and the music stops and that kind of thing. It's really, really, that that's the stuff that I feel like it's just, you know, really makes, you know, movies lift off the screen. I agree. I'll get you guys out of here on this one um, because I find this really interesting. Like you have this idea of like, I am enough. I deserve, you know, full happiness. And this, I, you're also dealing with narcissism in the film and, and finding yourself discovery and kind of like taking, you know, it's a really interesting thematics that you actually have going on in this film outside of all the insanity that takes place in it. To me, that's what makes movies so great is if you can find a grounded element in a, a, a fantasy or in, in, in an over the top aspect of certain things. It's just kind of a, it's to me, it's really good filmmaking. Um, and I want to ask each of you, there's gotta be a catharsis that you find 
in a, in this process, um, you know, in terms of like th- th- your own catharsis and your own life. Like Ben, with your character, he's so over the top and so insane in sequences. I wonder what catharsis that brings you in your own life to play that out. I love um, part of the reason why I do. Uh, I mean, part of the reason why I love acting, part of the reason why I do voiceover is you just get to. It's just you get to like, first of all, you get to be different versions of yourself. You get to be exaggerated versions of yourself. I've never shot guns in real life. I don't really fight people. You know, if we're in a basketball court, I'll push somebody if I need to. But, you know, like I'm not I don't know how to do that stuff. And and so like this character for me was just like letting there was no there's no filter on him. So he's just like this and his his. But the best part is the, the way that you make it a character that hopefully people care about is you tie it to something. You see that he's trying to just impress his mom. He's trying to get anybody to like him. He's trying to he's trying so hard to get his friends and his mom to respect him that he'll do anything. He'll go and kill somebody. But we had great moments. And there's this um, it got cut down quite a bit. But there's this great moment where I stick up the um, uh, restaurant and I go to Aquafina's character and I get in there and there's like a fun joker moment we had where I go all the way around her and I get really close and Chris got right in my face and got two cameras and we're winding on each other and we did it for three days. It was like the most fun ever, but it was really fun to get like so crazy and, and dialed in and like really um, to try to feel those emotions because I get to do comedy so much that when I'm given the challenge of trying to make this funny, but now let's try to make this real. This isn't funny anymore. This is, he's really thinking, he's really trying to terrify her. Um, and that scene at the beginning started with a bunch of comedy where I'm like yelling at all the people. And then when I see her, I start really getting into it and we just zone in and we lock in and I become kind of a maniac. Um, uh, and, and so that stuff was really, uh, that stuff was really, really fun and really, uh, I guess, I guess it is cathartic because I'm not that person. I'm not a very aggressive type person, but to let, to let out stuff like that. Um, it's fun. It's just also fun to try different things. You know what I mean? You don't want to get so comfortable. I remember uh, Jane Fonda did my improv show once and she, I said, why did you say yes to doing this? And she goes, because I got to do stuff that scares me. What am I doing? If I'm not doing stuff that scares me, I can't keep doing it. And so I thought that was really smart. And so, um, Mm. I like trying to flex other muscles. I like trying to get stronger in other areas. And this, this was definitely a version of that. Uh, and to get out all that, all that stuff. It's the same with like yelling scenes, but it's the same with like big laughter scenes in other movies. Like it's just so fun to express yourself and to try to, you know, make it a little bit contagious. Yeah, definitely. And, and this, for Chris, for you at the end of the filmmaking process, do you find a certain catharsis or a therapeutic aspect of like, but once you finish it, it's done, it's out there. Like, does it give you a certain catharsis? Absolutely. And I just want to say one thing about Ben, like, you know, the, the, the Ben's performance in this movie, I'm one, one of the things we're really, we're really happy with. Unrecognizable. Really, really, really proud of. Yeah. Is that people really are responding to Ben and seeing him in, in, a, in a different way. Like that's something that's really, cause he did, he did a lot of, I mean, Ben's amazing. Cause he can, and that's the thing I needed. Somebody who could flow back and forth, be, be funny and then take it into a serious space taking the drama, you know, you know, to be intimidating to try to intimidate Aquafina, but then also be this guy who was intimidated by his mom and all that kind of thing. And then again, make it funny and be able to flow back and forth from one, you know, one part of the scene to another. And I was really, I'm really happy that people are noticing Ben in this thing because he did such a, he did such a fucking good job. Thanks. Really, fucking, really happy. Um, um, I, uh, but as far as like cathartic, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, Look, if you're not, if you're not, if you're a filmmaker and you're not learning something about yourself in the process of making this movie, you know, not trying to like, you know, 
trying to trying to you know like figure out what your strengths are and like buttress your weak 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 weaknesses and things like that you know like and, and you're not really listening to like you know hey you know here here's something wow here's something you can learn you know from from this experience or here's some here's something oh cool I, i've got an opportunity to do that in this thing if you're you're then you're kind of sleepwalking through life i think i think if you call yourself a you know a filmmaker an artist or whatever like i think you have to you have to use these uh opportunities to grow and and, and be really aware of yourself as well as aware of like you know the the, the team that you're leading because you know you got yeah. hopefully you're growing in the same way that the team is hopefully you know, growing like a coach or something like that, you know, where you're hopefully helping everybody kind of like find something, you know, new and, 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 and is supporting, you know, uh, their growth. So I, you know, that, that to me, like, I, I hope, you know, I hope to never not be listening in the process mm -hmm. to, to what, what a movie can teach you, you know, that's been the most. And I think you can't just have action and gore. You got to have what Chris does and you got to have the heart between the character. You got to care. My character can't just be a maniac. You know, the Joker just can't be the Joker. There has to be something underneath that's driving these characters or you're not going to care. Same with the theme of the film. Um, you can make movies like that, but I think the ones that really get a, like that really attach us are the ones that have these underwriting. Like Dracula's character even feels like you can see Nick Holt obviously being like, oh, God, I feel uh, Renfield rather feeling like, oh, my God, I'm under the, the leadership of this person. I can't break out. And it's such a relatable thing. Someone who wants to get out of their job. Someone who feels their boss. Someone who feels that they're... Um, their partner is weighing them down. But also you see like the pettiness in Dracula too, being yeah. like this guy, yeah. like it's amazing. Like if you just saw Dracula always feeling so like, so over everybody, but he's like, he's like, are you kidding me? You want to leave me? Are you kidding? And you see the pettiness yeah. and that's what makes the meat in that character. And it's like, it, it's so, I think, I think that's when things get really fun. And that's when I think people really get to rewatch a bunch. Cause if you don't do that, it's just, just, you're just watching set pieces. You know what I mean? And waiting for the next set piece. But yeah. when you give someone some meat and potatoes, that's what I try to do in my writing. You always try to, then you care even more about the moment. If you give them enough about the character, then they're going to care what happens when, during that fight, as opposed to just watching a fight. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's all narratively driven. Well, listen, I got to get you guys out of here. I know Chris said you have another interview to get to. Uh, it's, it was a pleasure to talk to both of you. Uh, thank you for being on real blend. Uh, both of you returning guests, which is amazing. So we appreciate you coming on and thank you for making films that make people want to go to the theaters. And, and uh, thank you for everything you said about filmmaking. Our, our audience is going to be really excited to hear this one. So appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank Ken. you so much. Kevin. You. Much I love you. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you so much to our good friends at Universal for hooking us up with that interview with uh, Ben and Chris on behalf of Renfield. Like I said, the boys are going to um, review that later on in the show. I didn't get a chance to see it being at Star Wars Celebration, which is our transition into the next talking point um all of the what, things what that we learned is this for you uh that's a good question i think it's like five five because um, i mean obviously the the origins of this show have ties to star wars celebration they do yes so i've done two in london i did the one in orlando and i did the one in chicago that might be mm-hmm. it maybe that's those four um and the Jake chicago and I, one we were all there for which chicago is cool. was fantastic yeah. yes and everybody was discussing that one because of the weather that sunk us all in on that the weather oh, that, that yes. i think came right. down at a perfect time because remember it was an insane snowstorm on the night of the game of thrones premiere yeah we that's all watched right. it together all of us watched it together or no Sean because Sean left. that's how yeah. badly Sean didn't want to hang out with us. He <laughs> left in a snowstorm. Did. But then didn't, didn't, didn't he get stuck anyways in another state? St. Louis. Yeah. To be fair, Sean couldn't watch the, the finale with us because he was recording a reaction series. At the That's time. true. No, it was the premiere. Sean said. Yeah, but I was still yeah, reacting to, react to, it. to it. Oh, boo freaking who. I was reacting to it live. <laughs> okay. You guys don't understand. The moment an event ends, I can't get out of that location fast. <laughs> I'm legitimately scratching and clawing to get away from the event. Says so um, the guy who spent like eight days in London. Yeah, I was there for a really long time. And so the big takeaway. Why are you there for so long? Um, I think because of Easter Sunday, they stretched the convention to Monday. So it was like huh. a. Instead of being a Thursday to Sunday thing, it became a Thursday to Monday thing, which was too long. And then the event that they wanted us to stay for for Monday was like a Star Wars Visions Volume 2, which is like an okay show. But I was like, Disney paid a lot to keep us here for that amount of time. It wasn't like Mandalorian or Ahsoka or something like that. So um, I wanted to get into the three movies that were announced, and I wanted to get your guys' opinion on this. And Jake, I'll start with you because... uh, when when the, this announcement came out, the way that it was revealed, and I don't know if you were paying attention to it in real time, but this graphic came up of this um, this timeline, essentially, of the different periods that Star Wars uh, and Lucasfilm are going to be focusing on moving forward. And they announced um, that James Mangold was going to be making a movie. Dave Filoni was going to make a movie. And then um, oh, I don't remember the name of the other director. Uh, she's a writer primarily, and this is her first directorial or she did a, a documentary. Uh, yeah, yeah. Charmaine Obeyed Chinoy. OK, um, she is going to be doing a film set uh, 15 years past uh, Rise of Skywalker. And that's when they announced that uh, Daisy Ridley would be returning as Ray. But when they put all the graphics up, I, I, it legitimately made it sound like they had nine movies coming. Like that each of those time periods was a different movie and they were just revealing the director's for three of them. Did you feel that way at all? Or did you catch up with all the news later? Well, you have to keep in mind a lot of that stuff because I was in not just a, a different time zone from London, but a different time zone than where I'm at. So by the time I was in, in uh, Napa on a personal trip. Mm-hmm. So by the time I woke up there at seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, it was already it had already blown up like my phone, you know, was it had 10,000 notifications. And when you work in news, that's either a very good thing or a very bad thing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, look, I don't want to be negative Nancy, but like, honestly, I can't help but feel a little bit like, I don't know, just I, 
they've announced so many things that have never come sure. to fruition. So I will believe that these things are happening, not even when they're filming, like when I'm sitting in the theater and they're, it's playing in front of me. Hmm. I will believe that it's a reality. But till then, it's just a thing that they're talking about, just like every other thing that they've talked about that never happened. I mean, if you can go as far as, as shooting a huge announcement video with Patty Jenkins and then never make that movie, yeah, you can yeah. announce it at Star Wars Celebration and never make it. So I don't yeah, know. That's, that's that- why it's hard for me to get truly excited about any of this. And that's kind of like that goes to the whole idea of stakes and 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 emotional ties to these situations like the Patty Jenkins video. You don't make a video like that and then just like cancel it. I mean, it's it's crazy to me. And then like today, as we're recording, they 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 and this goes to Sean's opening joke. They changed the HBO Max just to Max. And then they just announced like 55 things or something like that. And I, I was just sitting there on my Twitter going. I can't keep up with this and I'm mm-hmm. I'm in this industry and I don't know how a, an average consumer outside of somebody who works in the industry is even keeping track of this. I mean, and to speak to your point, Kevin, like just while you were talking about that, I've jotted down six off the top of my head projects that they've announced uh, the Taika Waititi <laughs> movie, the Kevin Feige movie, the Patty Jenkins movie, the Ryan Johnson trilogy. Uh, the film from the Game of Thrones guys and Damon Lindelof was recently <laughs> working on a Star Wars movie and none See? of those are coming to fruition. Now, Pat, um, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, wow. during the press line for this, she did say that Taika is still currently writing his movie and she's still interested in producing it. She said that Patty Jenkins's Rogue Squadron could actually become a series. They're not abandoning that completely. Um, and then with Ryan Johnson, she said, you know, he's still sort of moving forward with what he wants to do. I feel like the Game of Thrones guys and the Damon Lindelof project has now become the James Mangold film, mm, which is going to be set 25,000 years before the prequel trilogy. Like he's he said to get as far away from Star Wars as possible. I want to go just away from it all. And I'm going to tell a story uh, a really long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Exactly. Yes. The, the lead character is still really a Skywalker. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> Palpatine is baby Palpatine. <laughs> Somehow Palpatine is back. <laughs> so assuming that Mangold makes this movie, um, which he has also confirmed that he's doing both a Bob Dylan film next with Timothy Chalamet playing Bob Dylan. Um, that I'm interested in. Around the period when Dylan transitions from acoustic to electric and that Which Chalamet is going to be doing. I didn't realize just how much Timothy Chalamet looks like Bob Dylan. Dude, yeah, that Bob. side by side of Chalamet, like whatever age they had Dylan and I th- and I read Chalamet is going to do all of his own singing in the yes, film. Yeah, just was all of incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very very excited about yeah, that. Yeah, but first we have to get through a... Wonka to, in order to get to the the Bob Dylan oh. Chalamet. But he shot Wonka already. Yeah, it's coming. I think it's coming in December. I think I've it's talked to people who've year. seen Wonka. Well, I'll tell you later. Okay. Wait a second. So he has Dune in and in, Wonka. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the year. Yes. Oh, correct. I was talking to Rebecca Ferguson today. I'm like, you have what a mission, and then you have Dune. Yeah, that's much like, better. I was like, how do you feel about that? She goes, I'm taking a like a 10 week vacation to Mexico before all of that happens. There's <laughs> something like that, a 10 day. And I was like, she goes, I, I'm going to be like so booked. But I'm like, what an amazing. Yeah, anyway, so that's a great stretch. Mangold. Yeah. The, the second movie is the Dave Filoni movie. And the reason why I want to bring this up, because I find this really interesting, is because Filoni has talked about the fact that um, his movie is going to be that people started describing it at Star Wars Celebration as star wars avengers 
because it's going to take plot threads that are currently happening on. And this is where Kevin gets into. You have to watch too much stuff to understand what's even happening. But it's going to take plot threads that are being laid out in The Mandalorian, The Book of Boba Fett and Ahsoka and possibly even Skeleton Crew and tie them together into one big movie. So, wow, it's a lot of homework. But uh, what I'll say, I think we're a little jaded in that in that Star Wars fans are very hardcore. Star Wars fans 100%. watch everything and it's a religion. Oh, yeah. And I think there are enough of them to sustain Star Wars. And if there's anything wrong with Star Wars that they need to correct, it's that they weren't really they were trying to recreate, you know, the original series on the big screen and but, not yeah, really like, in, in telling a story and, and giving people what they want. So, yeah. But Gabe, don't you think like and th- again, and this is not to sound jaded. I love movies. I love Star Wars, everything. Don't you think there's a point where it's too much? Don't you think there's a point where they dilute it? Mm, where it's almost, uh, it, it, where it, it just gets like it's like too sugary. It's too it, it there. We I feel like sometimes I know what you mean. We've had Marvel this, now. We've discussed it. I, feel I, like I, I, understand I want it saying. to be more special. Like, OK, Jake, remember when episode one came out? OK, like we're in a star Wars world at that point where we have, you know, three movies and then, but think about how special those episodes felt. Now when a show comes out and a new movie's announced, it doesn't feel the same. I and think I, what I you're, get, what you're reacting to is I, I think that it's, it's just, there's a larger picture that I think we're not, I think you're just looking at how much is there and sure there's a lot coming out, but what we're yeah. in the middle of right now is a sort of, um, I don't want to use the word war. We're in a streaming war. We're in the, sure. All of these, uh, all of these studios, all of these distributors are trying to gain the mind share of consumers in this new era, which is still yeah, new. Max We've is doing the same thing with Harry yes. Potter and everything. So yeah. it feels a little yeah. oversaturated and it's felt that way for a long time where they're trying to pump as much original content into their streamers as they can. And theatrical releases and these series are what's backing that up. Disney needs yeah. to compete with Netflix that's been on it for the last decade and all of these other look at Max which is just taking all of their properties and and you know the Discovery Plus properties and putting them into one. It's it's I think going to uh taper off is my prediction eventually because it it is a lot and it is sort of too much, but what you're going to have is a backlog of content that they can justify $10 a month, $15 a month or whatever. So I I do Good think point. it's a temporary problem. Um, but you're right. I think it's also a personal choice of in that as a consumer, you have to navigate what you want. So it's like, are you star Wars? Okay. You're all in on star Wars. Are you, do you just want to watch the Marvel movies and not the Marvel TV? Then, then do that. And I think for the, for us, it feels a little daunting because we feel like we need to have, we need to participate because it's our job, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it feels like we need to have this large scope, but I think for the average consumer, definitely for the average consumer, but even the fan, um, I think that they're okay with missing what they feel like missing. And if enough people recommend it, maybe they go back. Like, I don't know that it's as overwhelming for most people. Uh, I think they do a easy job of picking and choosing. But like when Sean brings up the Filoni, the Filoni movie, I'm like all the shows you have to watch those to, un- to understand Filoni's movie. I, I, I gotta be honest. Well, my, my, my issue right now with, with both Marvel and star Wars and, and this, I Sean, I'm curious as to if this was at all, subdued topic of star wars celebration isn't the amount of of uh isn't the quantity it's the quality like mm-hmm. to me the like the dip in quality on mandalorian this season is astonishing the the yeah. dip in quality on most of the marvel series on most of the marvel films astonishing if they That's were pumping saying. out yeah. but if they were pumping out high quality things week after like when when like 
Mando was at its peak and we were excited about Boba Fett before it came out. Like, like I was all like I would make a point to get up every morning before work to watch these things so that I didn't have it ruined for me. And now I'm three weeks behind on Mandalorian because I don't care because it's not that great right but now. I'll give you so, an example of something outside of the frame. I feel that way about Ted Lasso season three. Oh, interesting. The episodes yeah, have been OK. I've, I've seen I've seen people online destroying Season three, I, I think to to I to, think okay. to Jake to Jake's point they're though, I th- I think it goes hand in hand. I haven't seen Ted Lasso season three, so I can't comment on it. But I like it. to Jake to Jake's yeah. point, like I would argue that 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 my point and your point go hand in hand. When you have too much content, you lose focus on the quality. It's like the way out. The way I would put it is like this: the reason why In and Out Burger isn't on the East Coast, in my opinion, is because once you start venturing out across the country you start losing the it's ability texas, to dude. control well i know i know it's in texas but it's not on the east coast but what you start you lose the ability to control the quality of your content of, of your of your of what you're producing sure. because it's in too many hands there's too much going on there's too many stores there's too much to handle well, so it dilutes the quality and and, and you i love think taco bell i do love taco bell but i mean at the end of the day i think the point i'm making and the point you're making go hand in hand <laughs> i think that the i think the um quantity is what's affecting the quality. So, yeah, that, uh, yes. I mean, well, absolutely. It, it comes down to is stuff being written because it has to be written to fill a void right. or is it being written because you ultimately want to write it? And right now, I think we're in a period where stuff is getting written because it has to be written to, to fill a need. Um, but yep. let me talk about this third project. Then I want to get your sense on how you guys all feel about this one. This one's by um, Charmaine Obeid Chinoy. Um, and like I said, it's, it's going to be set 15 years who, after who, who directed Rise the Skywalker. Miss um, Marvel series, by the way. Oh, yeah. all of it? Really? Uh, or just a few I, episodes? I, I don't think I don't think I think they had several directors on. OK, yeah. and hmm. it's going to bring back Daisy Ridley. She is going to become the new Jedi leader who is building up uh, a new stable of Jedi uh, and then is going to have to encounter some forces that that take it down. And 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 I. We tried to get Kathleen Kennedy to commit to which of these three movies might happen first. Like, are they do they have to happen in a certain order? Um, and this is how I felt. They brought Daisy Ridley back out on stage. She got the warmest welcome. There was a lot of themes of redemption in in this Star Wars celebration. Hayden Christensen came out and again, felt this you know enormous wave of love at the Obi-Wan panel for people feeling that uh, that he did a great job as Anakin and kind of taking over the narrative that he bombed it in the in the prequel trilogy. Um, we got Ahmad Best, who got a spot in The Mandalorian and, and sort of got to play him? a Jedi. No, he didn't come to the I didn't see him at Celebration. But just that idea that, you know, he mm-hmm. got another shot. He got a second yeah. shot after having to play um, Jar Jar Binks forever. And now he gets to play a Jedi on The Mandalorian. And then Daisy Ridley, who I thought was completely undersold in the trilogy, like that character. The, had the, the, potential. the sequel trilogy is going to be, I think, just like the prequel trilogy, uh, more forgiven in time. Like people forget how like whenever people got off or like on on hating on the sequel trilogy they sort of all of a sudden felt like they always loved the prequel trilogy and i remember sort of sitting there Mm -hmm. going like all the people who are ragging on last jedi or or rise of skywalker like like five years ago you hated jar jar binks and phantom menace and attack of the clones like like it's so in 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 five ten years everyone will be fine okay well i don't i don't know if i'll ever forgive the thought of horny palpatine in my mind so uh, that's what that's what the rise of skywalker gave us jokes on you because that's your nickname in my phone (laughs) (laughs) my point being if they don't make that movie with daisy ridley 
I will be furious because they trotted her out on stage and gave her a hero's welcome. And then if you get an announcement about that, exactly, dude, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. Is that like I, I, I feel like this has to be it. I feel like we've gone through like two rounds of this. Will they, won't they? And it's all been sort of it's all been sort of colored by the reception of the sequel trilogy and sort of the stops and starts of Star Wars. I feel like given that it's been so long since we've heard news and all we've heard is like, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. This feels like they're finally like, all right, here's three things. And we're going to feel better if they had years on them, you know, like at least release. Well, 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 no, no, no. Why would you? But don't you feel better that they're maybe they don't put years on it because they're like, well, write the movie and then we'll put a year on it. Like, what if that's the what if that's what we're finally getting? Don't announce it until you write the movie then. Well, no, I mean, no, no. I mean, well, you're forced to announce it because of the it's a celebration. Yeah, they're it's not like going to have Star Wars like, celebration for another something. two years. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and I think that, you know, if the, if the movie's greenlit, the movie's greenlit. I don't know. I feel like we've definitely on this show complained about like putting the release date before you even write the movie. Sure. Yes, agreed. So, definitely. All right. Has anybody so ever three. asked Kathleen Kennedy directly why they didn't map out the, the, the that last trilogy? She's been asked that a couple of different times and she said, I forget her answer. She has a canned answer as to why they didn't, but, but she, be, she says they have, she said that they did essentially, but that might be the, the, the biggest that, fumbles. I, the fact I think that, that, that got Abrams was like making stuff up on the set of rise of Skywalker <laughs> implies that they didn't. The fact yeah. that, I mean, Daisy Ridley has said that they were going back and forth on who Ray was on the set so that implies they did not plan pretty, out the full trilogy. It's pretty bold. Um, that's a detail. My, that's, a, that's a. I think that's, that's a, a big between, detail. Sure, but but that but that's a detail compared to where these characters are going to go from A B to C, which sure, is, but I that, think that, as that far also, as a plan you would go you're, you're, for. I feel like you're sleeping on the part of that detail involves her being Ray or being Palpatine's granddaughter. Yeah, which I, which I guarantee a, you was not thought of. Sure, but I think that's a bad choice that you can make three quarters of the way through the movie that you don't need to make. on the first one like i think that's just a bad choice that they made sure how much of it is i know a lot of it is ryan went in one direction and and he probably should have been part of a bigger team discussion uh with his movies but how much of it is that they lost carrie fisher do you think carrie was going to be a significant part Mm -hmm. that definitely changed the last episode nine was going to be i mean that's that's actually a good point keep forgetting point yeah i keep forgetting that all right of the three james mangold's uh biblical epic jedi movie dave filoni's uh avengers endgame or um, the Charmin's uh, future Ray project, Jake. Which one do you uh, do you really want to see? Which one is the one that you're circling and saying, "Please make this"? Honestly, Mangold's Star Wars equivalent of Year One. The yeah. concept of like who was the very first person to say like, "Ooh, these midi chlorians," I'm tingling. Okay. Like Cavi- I, I want to know that that origin story of like, and also like twenty five thousand years before. Like that's that's what we need to do. Like break away from. Skywalker, I, I Skywalker adjacent stories, yeah. you know, and yeah. let's it's a big galaxy out there and there's a lot of time in a galaxy far, far away. Like, take me somewhere else. Because the movie the ends with Yoda. <laughs> the standalone is like Rogue One and yeah. Andor. They've all been in this time frame, essentially. Yeah. They haven't really gone too far. Uh, Kev, which one interests you the most? I mean, just uh, from a purely filmmaking standpoint is Mangold. I yeah. just I just am excited by him because I feel like, you know, listen, we haven't seen Indy yet. It looks great. Um, they might have finally gotten the de-aging thing right, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but yeah, I just feel like 
his filmography is so solid. And again, you know, I, I'm I'm down for anything. I'll watch anything. But Mangold, his name is what makes me excited about it. Mm-hmm. I just uh, it just worries me because as the six names you mentioned that uh, were announced projects that, you know, have fallen through the, the cracks or still might be happening, still might not be happening. I just don't know what to believe anymore. Like, like I feel like I just don't I, I can't let myself get excited until I see a trailer or something. So you're sitting you know. into the thing. Yeah. All right. yeah. I want to very quickly run through footage that they showed uh, in the panels just to give you guys a, a preview of what is to come, um, because there's a series coming in 2024 called The Acolyte um, Star Wars, and it's set during a time period uh, on this Star Wars timeline when the Jedi were at their height um, and the Empire was severely broken and it's way before a new hope and i think it's even before the prequel trilogies um and this one to me of the footage that they showed looked the best oh interesting uh, it, it looked like a samurai movie Ooh. um like a feudal samurai movie but jedi and there's Dude, a, that's multiple awesome. shots throughout it where it's just like the way you'd see an army of samurai, like the way brandishing their things. But it's like all of that. But with lightsabers, it was pretty ferocious. And this was like following on the heels of Kathy Kennedy when she said, hey, we're looking at this timeline. And one of the things that interests us the most is where are the Jedi on every point of this timeline? And so the acolytes going to take place at a time when they are in there. They're most powerful at that point. So, yes, Jake. So uh, is correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't an acolyte like a Sith apprentice? Yes. And a man. So, so this is pre Phantom Menace when Sith were at their weakest. Yes. And the acolyte is sort of the, the apprentice of the Sith as they're trying to find power again. So this wasn't confirmed, but I heard this as a rumor from a group of people who I trust. Amanda Stenberg is the main character in the acolyte or mm-hmm. one of the main characters. I like her. This was not confirmed, but I was told that she is playing twins. She's playing each of each version of twins. One is a Jedi and one is a Sith. Awesome. And the oh. show will be <laughs> how they um, rise up through the ranks and compete against each other. And it looked great. I mean, that looked tremendous. And That's I cool. can, cannot wait to see was what there, comes of the Did acolyte. you see any footage of Carrie Ann Moss in, in this? Yes, some. Not much. Um, you know what she's doing? No, not enough in the footage to really tell, um, because this one's not coming until 2024. So they it was yeah. really a cut. Well, that's together. a cool addition. That's cool. Yeah, she should be great. Um, we did see a lot of Ahsoka, which is coming in August. As How Rosario does that look? Dawson. It looks really good. Um, Rosario Dawson looks like she's fully in the role. Um, you kind of this is where it gets to be. You either do your homework or you're into this world already. It's There's a lot of characters from Star Wars Rebels that are getting live action interpretations in Ahsoka. Um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is going to be playing a character called Hera. Um, it's an actress whose name I forget is going to be playing um, Sabine, who's a main character from Rebels. Uh, and it's building up toward this confrontation with this villain who, um, whose name is Grand, Grand Admiral Thrawn. And they announced that Lars Mikkelsen, who's Mads Mikkelsen's brother uh, and was the voice of Thrawn in the animated series, is going to play him in live action That's as well, cool. too. So the action looked terrific. Um, it looked similar to some of the best Mandalorian type episodes. And um that's coming in August. So I'm very excited for that. Uh, Star Wars Visions. I- I'm into the idea of the Star Wars Visions. It's essentially they have found eight to ten animation houses from around the globe and have given them each the opportunity to tell a short film in the Star Wars universe. 
Um, in Visions Volume One, it was all Japan. So it was like all Japanese uh, interpretations of what a Star Wars story would be. Um, after that was well received, they were like, OK, we're going to blow it out. Now we're going to get a South American animation team and we're going to get a South African animation team and then a California team um, and have them come at us with a what would your idea of a Star Wars movie be? And they showed us one of them which was by the Ardman animation group, the guys who do Wallace and Gromit. Oh, so it was cool. a Wallace and Gromit short, but with like Star Wars characters. Motion? Yeah, they did stop motion animation. And Wait, it was is essentially it, is it like Wallace Wallace claymation. No, they are not in it, but it's modeled the same way. Like once yeah. you see the animation, you'll realize it looks I exactly like Wallace, Wallace, and Wallace and Gromit with lightsabers. Yeah, that's, that's, what's, <laughs> that's what I love about that, that series, which is so cool, is that's that cool. the st- the visual style of the episode cool. is done by those artists. Like they, yes. they're going there and they get to do their style, not only in the storytelling, but but visually, which is really cool. So the Japanese one was heavily anime influenced. But then you saw in this volume two where they showed us a bunch of footage it's animation styles from all over the globe. And so some of them will look very close to anime almost. And then some will be like this bulbous, you know, claymation type of Ardman short. And that's very uh, cool. They, they all look really cool. And one of the things about that, they too, we were talking about because, um, Oh, what's that character's name? Who's the X-Wing fighter. Who's really famous. Um, you tell what the guy, the JJ Abrams, friend, Luke no, Skywalker. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not going to remember it in time. God damn it. Well, he showed up in the Ardman uh, sketch and it asked, the, it, it prompted us to ask the wedge. Um, yes. Wedge Antilles. Thank you very much to ask the uh, creators. Can you use legacy characters? Like if one of these animated companies came to you and you invited them to participate in this, could you make a Han Solo short that just like ruined canon essentially? Yeah. And they were like, no, we wouldn't let you. We wouldn't let you do that. <laughs> but if you wanted to use somebody and it fit into the mold of your story, and it didn't mess with things too much. And you'd be able to do it because I guess yeah. apparently I don't watch all of volume one, but like Jar Jar Binks and um, or I'm sorry, Jabba the Hutt and Boba Fett are in one of them. And it didn't really mess too much with the yeah. canon, is so. is Wedge's first name Iceberg. <laughs> no, it's not. Thank you for asking. It's, not? it's uh, no, it's Wedge O Cheese. Wedge Wedge O Cheese. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I do like an iceberg wedge, man. I'll so the last right one, the last, show is, uh, the last show is Skeleton <laughs> Crew. And this is coming from uh, John Watts and one other um, oh, wow. producer who I'm who. But this is this was my concern. It's it's following uh, three to four young kids who get swept up in a, a Jedi adventure kind of deal. They were really sketchy on the details. But the problem is like th- like 15 or 16 times throughout the very short panel, they use the term Amblin. They just wanted to make you feel like, hey, we're trying to do an Amblin Star Wars thing. Hey, Amblin. Hey, remember how Amblin made you feel? You know, when that logo comes up and you just feel like something Amblin is coming. And I was like, you better you better stop and saying this. At one point, they just leaned forward it. and went, you love Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> and then they rode a bike across the moon. Yeah, exactly. Wait, can, on I, stage. Yeah. can I quickly read the, the directors on this series, though? Because that's sure. Having not seen anything from it, that's kind of the coolest part. So they have, so John Watts, of course, the Daniels. Oh, yes, right. Which is awesome. Mm -hmm. David Lowry of Mm -hmm. uh, Ghost Story and uh, The Green Knight. Bryce Dallas Howard returns. Yes. Lee Isaac Chung, who did Minari. Oh, wow. And Mm -hmm. uh, Jake Schreier, who is doing the Thunderbolts, did the series Beef, which Jake says he loves. Um, And a movie called Robot and Frank, which I, I loved. Uh, that's an incredible list of directors. Okay, that is really good. And you're telling me that you're going for an Amblin style. All of those directors could pull that off. 
Well, David Lowry also, from a kid's point of view, did Pete's Dragon. Yes, and, exactly. Um, Wendy and Peter, or Peter and Wendy, whatever the new yeah, one that's yeah, coming yeah. out that they just showed the trailer for. So, all right, that's David fine. Lowry. Yeah, that's David Lowry. And it's going right to Disney Plus. It's his follow up oh. to The Green Knight, and it's not even getting theatrical distribution. But Bo is afraid is three hours and is going to IMAX. <laughs> Figure that out. I'll see that next week. I'm it's, a family, next it's, a family, it's a family movie. You got to remember, yeah. Disney, Disney Plus is like. Oh, I thought you, you mean Bo is afraid. Bring the kids. So anyway, that's my big takeaway. I was very excited for the Acolyte. I think Ahsoka looks really good. Um, Visions looks fine and Skeleton Crew didn't do much to move my needle. But Gabe's right. That director's list sounds really solid. And um, how about we throw it to a break? And on the other side, we'll review this week in movies. And we are back. So this week in movies, uh, The Pope's Exorcist is getting a wide release from Sony. You guys might have seen some commercials for this. It stars Russell Crowe as a uh, based on true story, real life exorcist uh, who works for the Vatican, uh, was a uh, I guess he practiced in like the 70s and 80s. Is that the case, Jake, when he was primarily doing it yeah. or for many yeah. years after that? Because the I know movie that takes place in the 80s, takes place in the 80s. And, and, and he, he claims to have uh, performed over 100,000 exorcisms in his lifetime, and which they, seems like a lot. They uh, hard to do. William Friedkin, who did the exorcist, the power, of you, the power of Christ compels 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 <laughs> all of you. Like Gotta go. Bon, yeah. Can you do it over email? Yeah. The power of Christ Zoom. compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Send. He's got a MailChimp subscription. <laughs> Hundred thousand. That doesn't sound possible. The, the subject. The subject line is: Does the power of Christ compel you? And you click on the email. And it says you. Yes. You sell out one soccer stadium, and you're most of the way there. You know? The power of Christ compels all of you. That's, that's my review. That's my review. It's over. This is a missed opportunity now to come out over Easter weekend, to be honest with you. I mean, that's counter programming at its finest. Um, I thought that Russell Crowe was really good in this. I liked him a lot playing this part. Um, He's doing the there's two things that he has to do. One, he has to actually perform in the exorcisms. The main story is that a young boy gets possessed by uh, a spirit, a demon, and um, starts to torture his older sister and his mom, essentially. And there's a lot of times when Russell Crowe's character gets confronted with the details of what could potentially be a demonic possession. And he figures out how to um, pierce right through it by asking the person questions that, you know, the, the person wouldn't know and they can't answer it. But then when he questions this boy with similar logic, the boy is able to turn around like really personal details about Russell Crowe's character and um, and make Russell Crowe's character start to believe that maybe there's something going on here that. That is bigger than him. And the issue is that once it gets to all of the exorcist stuff, um, it it just it's a regurgitation of everything you've seen in every sort of exorcism movie. It's a person in a bed writhing around, spitting out curses uh, at a priest. It's a priest trying to perform all the same rituals that you've seen before. He's got a he's got an assistant priest who, you know, whose faith wavers at the, the worst possible time. It's the family who's, you know. Uh, breaking down the movie does to its credit start to explore a little bit something bigger when it gets into the fact that the location where the exorcism is taking place might have more to do with it and i want to stop there because there's some other secrets that are hiding in the film in general i'd say it's fine 
Um, it's definitely not one of the better exorcism movies I've seen. I think it's kind of average and it's unusual that Russell Crowe chooses to be in this at this stage of his career. I think he could probably choose better material, but because he's in it, I think he elevates it um, to the point where it's worth watching if you want to go check it out. I just it, I, I never found it scary. Never once was I scared by what was happening in this movie. And so if the point is to sort of freak you out um, and even you know, because you can do an exorcism movie, you can do some really funky things where you're just like, all right, that's unnerving. And I didn't need to see that. It doesn't even go that doesn't even go that far for me. And so I thought it was it was OK. It's perfectly fine. Jake, did you like it more than me? Um, I think I'm about on the same page. I, I, I found myself entertained for the first two acts while fully acknowledging that it, this was everything that we've seen before. But I did think it was a well-made version and a well-acted version of what we'd seen before. And so I kind of thought, OK, I'm into it, you know, and and the whole thing with with exorcism films is that you're meant to believe that many of them have a foot based in reality. If that falls under your faith and that is something that you believe in. And, and as I'm watching, I'm going, sure, maybe like Cool. You know, possibly. And then the last act, which is full of CGI demons breaking out of the ground and all that. hundred sort of thousand went. of them. A hundred thousand that he exercised all at one time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the final act, which was just chock full of CGI monsters, just made me go, oh, OK, I'm no, yeah. I'm done. I'm the out. Po- I'm the out. Pope's endgame became. Honestly, God, it really, it really was. <laughs> but the boys uh, did see Renfield. And so, Kev, why don't you kick it off and let us know how the Nicolas Cage vampire film uh, Renfield is. There, this is an interesting one because there's so much in this film that's really well done. But I think the biggest problem with it is it doesn't tonally know what it wants to be. Okay. And so, like, I think at the end of the day, when you have a film that's tonally misunderstood, some of the violence or some of the bits don't hit the right way. So everything kind of feels confusing. Um, on a positive note, Cage is incredible in the film. The practical effects used for his makeup effects, the teeth, it all looks amazing. I thought Schwartz was great. Um, it was very different character for him. I thought that. So who uh, is he playing? Sort of, if he's not Renfield, what does he play? Schwartz's character. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jake. He's like there's there's like, there's like a mob type uh, family that's involved in the storyline. And his character is trying to like he essentially encounters Renfield and tries to kill him. Right, okay. Jake. I mean, is that, that the right way to put it? How else would you explain it? You explain it far more exciting than it is. All in right. the movie. Yeah. Um, and so his character, like he's trying to impress his mom and and, and his mother is involved in the whole uh, mob aspect of, of that of that family. And uh, Renfield uh, comes in, co- in contact with him and that, that connects those characters. And so that creates the drama in the film. Um, yeah, I mean, like I think it was shot well. Beltrami's score is great. It, the filmmaking is great. I mean, like the gore effects are awesome. It kind of reminded me of the end of From Dust Till Dawn. Um, oh, wow. A lot of the different type of like practical effects they have with the blood and the splattering and the gore. The issue, as I mentioned, is the tonal aspect of it. It doesn't feel like the movie ever knew what it wanted to be. So like you have all these incredible aspects of filmmaking that are thrown in from performances that are great. And so you see uh, some of the practical effects and the, and, and even the CG works really well. And then you just have a movie that I don't really fully know. I, I, as I left the theater, I'm like, what was, what was, what were they trying to do? Um, I was always confused in a scene how I was kind of supposed to feel emotionally about what this moment was. Um, and the concepts, you know, it's, it, I, I will give it credit for what it plays with. It plays with the, the idea of 
narcissism and this concept of, you know, wanting to and, and taking ownership of your own life. And and it, it deals with the idea of being in a bad relationship and not knowing how to get out of it. Um, and that's kind of play, that plays into the comedy aspect. Certain moments when Renfield will go to like a, a group therapy and like get advice and they don't know that his boss is actually Dracula. So that those things actually work. But then I just didn't know tonally that the film overall knew what it was. So I was I thought it was fine. I just there's a lot of great things in there, but it just didn't work overall for me. Jakey, a little more. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Cage's performance is infinitely better than the entirety of the film. And I think that sort of kind of leads into my issue, which is that the strongest thing that the movie has going for it, which is the relationship between Renfield and Dracula, the relationship between Nicolas Cage and Nicholas Holt uh, is is a secondary plot line. It's it's kind of put in the backseat for large chunks of the film. When the film starts and it's about them, I thought, cool, like I'm I'm in this. I dig it. It's fun. They have they have great chemistry. I like to play on this relationship. If you're familiar with the novel or, or familiar with the uh, the 31 film, um, but then it the film diverts. Uh, Dracula kind of goes away for a while. It's sort of set in the back burner and Renfield enters this plot line with a cop played by Aquafina and uh, a mafia boss played by Sheree Agadashlu and her son who has been Schwartz. And that just doesn't work. The plot's not interesting. It's, it's repetitive. It's generic. It's, and the whole time you're just going, just bring back Dracula. That's all I wanted. <laughs> yeah. Like all I wanted was Nicholas Cage's Dracula. Like why, like how, how are you making this so complicated? And even then, once they finally do, it's Dracula involved in this plot with characters that we don't care about. It, I really do think that like they started out with a really good core of an idea and couldn't figure out a way to make a, a, a 90 minute film out of it. So they had to flesh it out with this secondary plot that just doesn't work. And, and the, the two plots got lost. It's unfortunate because there is a kernel of something there. There, there is, yeah. a, a, you know, there's a great idea there. And I feel like this was a, a first draft of a script that could have taken a few more passes but the most frustrating thing is a few more passes really could have made it something special so this okay. is the most frustrating kind of uh, a bad review i can give in that it didn't have to be a bad review it there, there it's, it wasn't just a blanket bad movie there's 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 potential there that it, that is yeah. wasted and unfortunately a brilliant uh, nicholas cage uh, performance is buried in a uh, a highly mediocre movie I still need to go see Air. Should I go see Air this weekend? Dude, yes. Air is awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm surprised. Surprised. You've been on yeah. a lot of flights. <laughs> Do you think they're just showing it? Uh, no, you were in the air. That was, that was air. as bad as the wedge salad thing. That's pretty good. <laughs> no, the wedge salad one was great. I'm going to stand by that. Jake, keep going as we head into our blend game, which is uh, in honor of Renfield. We're playing hashtag horror comedy blend. Uh, the, the odd mixture of thrills and chills uh, and laughter. So where did you go for your horror comedy blend? Uh, my pick is actually one of my favorite horror films of all time. I consider this horror comedy. You guys can push back if you want. An American Werewolf in London. Yeah, good uh, call. John Landis, uh, an absolutely brilliant blend of what is genuine, true horror. I mean, like there. I mean, a lot of times I feel like uh, horror comedy, comedy horror leans into the, the comedy aspect of it in, with with horror being the background. And American Werewolf in London is a 
terrifying horror film but it is also like just so messed up that you can't help but laugh at so many aspects of it um progressively you know the, the friend who gets ripped apart and his progression as you know as turning into to the werewolf uh, i cannot say enough about uh rick baker's uh makeup and prosthetic oh work oscar winning makeup and prosthetic work i believe gabe if you want to double check this that an american werewolf in london was the first movie to win the makeup Oscar? I could be wrong. Um, but I, I re- recently rewatched this film last year, and we're talking about a film that's that's 40 plus years old. And it's still, you know, we talk about this a lot because practical effects just age better than, than CGI. That is correct. So American, American Werewolf in London was the first film to win the Academy Award for Best Makeup. Yeah, uh, worst won the first competitive Oscar awarded in that category for oh, American wow. Werewolf in London and is... According to this, I don't know when actually when this when they wrote this. This is on the Oscars website. Record holding winner of seven Academy Awards for makeup. Rick Baker out of of 11 nominations. Rick Baker. Rick Baker. Uh, Fun Rick Baker story. Uh, We were at the um, Critics Choice Awards one year and I was seated at the table for Big Hero 6 with the cast and crew of Big Hero 6. And a mutual friend of ours, Kylie, came over to me and said, hey, um, I love Big Hero 6. It was like my favorite film of the year. Like it would mean a lot to me if I could sit with them. Would you trade seats with me? And so like when it's something that important to someone, you go, sure, of course, where are you sitting? And she said next to that guy with the ponytail and the <laughs> guy with the ponytail was Rick Baker. And I said, yeah. just I said, OK, I, I just want you to be aware you're giving up a seat next next to Rick Baker. Like that's I'm, I, I want that seat, but I want to make sure you're aware who you're. Yeah. She's like, oh, I don't care. So the, the, I turned into Chris Farley the entire night. I was like, remember that time that what was that, he there like, for? You know, he was there. He lost. I remember okay. what. Oh my God. What was he there for? I wonder. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't. I'll, I'll come up with it after the show. But he was okay. very kind. He was brilliant. And and the the blend of and I think one of the reasons I do love an American Werewolf in London so much is because I think it's a really solid 70 30 split with 70 percent being horror, truly distort, disturbing horror with a fun jolt of, of comedy in there. Just enough to make it, I yeah. think, under the umbrella of horror comedy. OK. Kev, where'd you go? I went with The Cabin in the Woods because. Yes. Oh, cool answer. I just find this movie, like, again, comedy is an interesting word to use, but there, it, it, it is a film that I guess in that percentage that Jake is talking about that has aspects of comedy, especially the the character who, you know, if, uh, spoiler alert, if you've never seen the film, uh, just, you know, don't continue listening if you haven't seen it. But there's a character in the film that survives the movie because he smokes weed. Yeah. <laughs> and like, but that's the, like, that's the entire reason he's it's sort of like it follows. It's, it's where it flips the, you know, <laughs> where, where it, with it follows where like, you have to have sex in order to survive, which it used to be right. the opposite. So I right. literally just showed this movie to Brendan, um, a week ago. We watched it last weekend yeah. and the lines from that stoner character are so funny like there's yeah there's a moment where they find the latin passage in the basement and he goes yeah i'm drawing the line here do not yeah. read the latin because <laughs> he knows everything that's gonna happen to them dude that character so for people who haven't seen cabin in the woods it it, it to me was the was the, probably the most mind-blowing film of that type of genre since the first scream because it was just so it just played with the world and the idea of horror, but in a very unique way. And Drew Goddard just directed the hell out of that film. And I think like Chris Hemsworth, I mean, this was a movie that I, I remember reading sat on the shelf for years. 
Uh, I think they shot it. He shot it before he was Thor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then and then it came out and I'm like, this movie was sitting on the shelf like it is so incredibly amazing. I remember because doesn't Hems again, we're in spoiler territory. Forgive me. Doesn't Hemsworth character die while trying to ride off the cliff and he and and he He gets hit by the the wall? The digital wall. Yeah. 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 He has like this big dramatic line. Yeah. Yeah, they're it like, was great. Like, Don't and, hold back on, yeah. on his speed. Yeah. He goes, I, I never <laughs> I do. Never do. <laughs> <laughs> but I will never forget the look on my face during that elevator ride scene. Like yeah, yeah. there like there is just like like going to Jake's point about the shocking horror aspect of it. That scene is so terrifying, but also so weirdly over the top. It just finds this perfect tone because it's so insane, but it's also really disturbing and very scary. But for some reason, it's like weirdly highly entertaining yes. um, watching the characters go down the, the elevator. And then Sigourney Weaver at the end, like it, I, I just love that character. I love that moment. I love that decision. I, I'm a big fan of movies that present a huge moral decision like that. I always find it interesting. Oh, yeah. Like you, you think to yourself, what would, you know, what, what's, what are you supposed to do in this situation? I just really found that film to strike a tone that I haven't seen. And Richard Jenkins, oh, that yeah. whole character, who's the yeah. other actor with him? Bradley Whitford. Bradley, Bradley Whitford. Brilliant. Yeah. Who is, Great and get out as well. Um, so I, whenever I see him, I always think, aside from the West Wing, I always think I would have voted Obama a third time. <laughs> that's what he says. Yeah, and get out. Yeah. But the, the whole, so like, that's the thing. There's so many layers to that film. Like at the beginning, it, it plays off like an old school, like horror film. They're getting ready to go on a trip. They go to this cabin and then you deal with this concept of Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford's character who are behind the scenes playing games with these people. I mean, mm-hmm. it is such a layered and very interesting film like and great performances from everybody involved like it's a really and like Chris Hemsworth's character as I mentioned there's a scene in the woods with him and his girlfriend that is so terrifying and so brutal like they really do like lean into the disturbing nature of what they're dealing with but at the same time the cutbacks to to Jenkins and Whitford are just so funny that it's just I don't know they, they they found a perfect tone of horror comedy with the cabin in the woods. One of my favorite movies of all time. I love that. Great movie. choice. Great, great choice. All right. I'm going old school and I picked uh, monster squad, which I just adore. Um, yeah. Monster squad is a great, uh, a great entry drug uh, for your kids into horror. If, they, if you're trying to figure out the right type of movie to show them, it is a group of kids who are fascinated with um, horror creatures, horror films, uh, which is something that I was as a kid growing up. So I loved seeing characters like this portrayed on screen. And then due to a, a curse that is unleashed, all the classic uh, universal monsters uh, come back in modern times. It's Dracula, it's Frankenstein, it's uh, the mummy. And these kids have to band together in order to stop them. It has the attitude of uh, the Goonies and a bunch of other these sort of late 80s where the kids were pretty smart and the adults were really stupid. Um, and they, uh, have a terrific culmination, uh, at the end of the movie where they need, um, a virgin to read German essentially in order to stop this portal from opening and sucking up the entire world. Uh, and they get this teenage girl, uh, to read it and she reads it and nothing happens. And they're like, I thought you said you were a virgin. And she was like, 
I am. And uh, she's like, you know, that one time it didn't count. And they were like, what do you mean it didn't count? It was like the most pivotal moment of the movie where she had to read it. So they end up getting this little girl to read it because she's six and is able to read German and shut the whole thing down. It's just fantastic. I've never seen Monster Squad. I've never oh, seen this dude, movie. dude, it's so funny. You'd love Jake, it. Jake, have you seen it? Yep. Yep. You'd get a huge kick out of it. It's terrific. Right, I'll watch it. Yeah, it's really great. I think that I'm not sure if Shane Black wrote it. Shane Black might have might have written Monster Squad, but um, it's great. If you haven't had a chance to see it, check out Monster Squad. Terrific blend of uh, horror and comedy for from an old school perspective. Uh, audience picks. Carolina Mishura says uh, the menu going with a recent pick. Jose Munoz said Beetlejuice. Uh, Ariel Pace said Ready or Not. And then there was a ton of love, although I think Gabe might have manipulated the audience with his uh, GIF, GIF choice. Yeah, it's GIF. It's GIF uh, with Shaun of the Dead. A lot of people went with Shaun of the Dead. Uh, and that includes C. Harlow and Bubba and Matt Karen and Harry Lickman and many men. Not that it's a bad choice. Honestly, Shaun I thought one of us would choose it. Shaun of the Dead is an excellent pick. choice. I want to give a quick shout out to Fran Kranz, um, who plays the stoner character oh, right. in The Cabin in the Woods. He ended up going on to direct a very serious drama that we all did press for called Mass. Terrific. Which was a really yeah. serious drama about, a, about school shooting and, and the characters involved and the families. And Mass is a really, really good movie. Just very hard to Terrific. watch. Very, 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 uh, very brutal. But yeah. Well, you can't pick Mass for next week's um, blend game because we're playing hashtag Sam Raimi blend. And Sam Raimi did not direct Mass, unfortunately. But he did direct a lot of other classics. That you will have to choose from when you decide what your choice will be for Sam Raimi Blend. So you can let us know via email at realblendassimblend.com or you can tweet us on social media at Sam, hashtag SamRaimiBlend.com. Jake, did you have a question? Yeah, well, I was going to, can I do a shameless plug? Of course. Um, and in conjunction with Evil Dead wait, Rise. Wait, wait, wait. I need you to do this plug full of shame, please. Oh, oh trust me. It is. <laughs> yeah, Michael, Michael Fassbender in, in, style. Go ahead. In conjunction <laughs> with, uh, wow, with uh, uh, Evil Dead Rise, I interviewed uh, Bruce Campbell the other day, and I just went through um, a long list of stories and urban legends I've always heard about the Evil Dead. Basically, it was like, I've got 10 things that I've always heard about this movie. Weird things that happened on the set or off the set or whatever the case may be. I'm going to go through them and you tell me if they're true or not true. And if not, give me give me the real story. And he was great about it. We went through every single one and some of them were true and some of them were not true. And some of them were better stories than I could have even imagined. That's awesome. That's a so really awesome. Talk about Bubba Hotep. Oh, we did not. We did not talk about Bubba. <laughs> but if you're a fan of Evil Dead, uh, check out my YouTube channel, my interview with uh, Bruce Campbell. There you go. All right. That is a shameless plug. Our next premium episode, <laughs> as teased uh, earlier in the show, is an IMDb game. Well, where can listeners continue to follow everybody? Just go to social media. We are at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach. And the show is at Real Blend. We'll talk to you guys next week with a brand new episode dropping on Friday with probably some interviews, uh, some heavy duty reviews and more charm from all four of us. Talk you to you said then. duty. Oppenheimer. <laughs> Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow. But I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control 
every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.